Hello. How's it going? That's good. Hey, um, I'm Jono, if I haven't met you, that's still my name. Um, if this is one of your first weeks with us, maybe it's your first week ever, welcome. I hope you have an awesome time tonight. I hope you meet some friendly people, and I hope you have a heaps good time, and I hope that some of the stuff we talk about now is really helpful for you as well. Um, now, I want to let you guys know we're actually starting, we're, we're doing what we do every week at EV Youth, right? We're going to be working through the Bible just like we usually do. Last year, this time last year, we were doing Mark chapters 1 to 8. We're going to finish off that book of the Bible tonight. So Mark is an account of Jesus' life written by this guy named Mark. That's what we're digging into here and we've jumped in halfway through. It's going to be a good time. Now, um, do you guys want to know a secret? Okay, thank you. That's good. Ben does. Um, I used to have hair on my head, on my head. Yeah, uh, no joke, there's a picture, there's the evidence. Uh, now, this is the point in my life where I had enough hair that I could pretty much trust any old person to cut my hair for me, because I was like, you know, it's always going to grow back, right? Wrong. <laughs> a few years later, here's me in kind of hair decline, there we go, on the, on the downhill just there. Um, at this point in my life, my hair was a delicate thing. It was a delicate thing. One false move, one ill-guided snip, and suddenly my baldness would be exposed to everyone to see. Now, if I could have cut my own hair at this point in my life, I would have, but I couldn't because that's a really hard thing to do. Uh, and so, basically, as my hair kind of became an endangered species, there was only one person in my life who I could trust to cut my hair. It was my friend, John Brinton, you probably don't know him, but I do, um, I'd come over his house and I'd sit in his backyard on a plastic chair and he would spend hours painstakingly sculpting my hair, kind of trying to preserve what there was. And he'd be saying stuff like this, he'd be like, now if I cut this bit too much, they're going to see the thinness in the back here. So, but also I've got to keep those sides nice and thin because otherwise by contrast the top's going to look real thin as well. But hang on a second, if I leave this top bit too long, it's going to look a little bit like a comb over and people are going to see through that. And he's kind of sitting there like working out how to make it look like I wasn't bald. Um, he was committed to this game of cutting my hair, right? He, uh, he was actually the person who walked me through the whole journey and eventually told me one day, Jono, we're going to have to call it. You've got to start shaving your head. And so I listened to him and we did, right? Here's a question I want to ask you. What would you be willing to trust another person with? I entrusted my very thin hair to my friend John, what would you be willing to trust another person with? For example, would you be willing to like take all of your money and give it to a friend who you thought was pretty smart and be like, you take care of my money, you spend it on what you think it should be spent on, you work out where it should go for me. Would you do that? Okay. Uh, what about this? Imagine, would you trust someone with your future job? Imagine you're doing the HSC and you're busy and you're a bit confused. You don't really know what you want to do when you finish and you didn't know what uni course to enrol in. Um, you know, would you like to say to that friend, I don't know what to do. Can you just choose a course for me and work it out for me? Who, who would do that? Get someone to choose what job you get. Some of you just don't want to make choices. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> what about this one? Would you let someone else choose who you date or one day marry? Would you ever let someone make that decision for you? In some cultures, listen to this, in some cultures... Um, it's pretty common, people have arranged marriages, right? So mum or dad, um, or together, they choose for you who you're going to marry. They choose ahead of time, yep, my son Billy, he's marrying whatever over there, right? Who, who would do that? Who would let your parents choose who you marry one day? Okay, wow, all right. I thought there'd be one cheeky person, but there you go. I don't know about you guys, but for me, 
the person that I want making the, the decisions in my life, the big calls, well, usually it's me. That's where I feel most comfortable, when I'm the one in control of those big sort of things. But here's the thing. Tonight, as we look at this passage, it's actually my job to convince all of us that the best way to live your life is actually to have someone else run it for you. That's what this part of the Bible says. Full disclosure, I'll be up front, the person that we're talking about is Jesus. What this part of the Bible says is that the best person to run your life is Jesus. And so I want to convince all of us that that's the case tonight. I want to convince us that it's a good idea to hand all of our life over to Him and have Him call the shots instead. Now, if you understand what's been said there, that's a big call to make. That's a huge claim to make. And I get that there's people here who are in all different places. Maybe it's your first night, you just walked in the door and you've heard, hey, there's someone else out there and he's supposed to run your life. That might sound pretty full on. Maybe you've been around for a while, but no matter where you're at, this is a big call. So I want to pray for God's help that we'd understand what Peter said and let's get into it. So let's pray, let's pray now. Father God, I pray please that you'd help us to understand what this huge claim on our life is supposed to mean. Please help us to understand your word here in Mark. Lord, please give us soft hearts to hear it and obey. I pray that you might do big things among us tonight by your word and, and by your spirit. Amen. All right. Now, the claim is we're supposed to have someone else run our life, this guy named Jesus, right? If that's the case, I reckon a really good question to ask is, well, what kind of person is Jesus? What kind of a life runner is he? Here's the first thing I want you guys to see in this passage. It's pretty clear. Jesus is actually the king who gave his life and suffered for us. He's the king who gave his life and suffered for us. Look at verse 31. Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's his name for himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and then after three days rise again. Suffer, be rejected, killed, and then rise again. That's what's on Jesus' bucket list. That's what his life is about. Suffer, rejected, killed, and then rise again. Now, I reckon... A bunch of us have heard that idea about Jesus so often that it doesn't shock us at all. We're used to this idea of Jesus being the one who suffers and dies. That's kind of who we think of Jesus as. But think about what it would have been like to hear that for the first time as Jesus' followers. Imagine you're Peter and his friends and they're following around Jesus. You've given up your life to follow this Jesus guy. You've put him in charge in a sense. You're following him and you're hoping he's going to be like this awesome king who's going to kind of defeat all your enemies and make everything awesome and good for you. And then this leader, Jesus says, hey, I'm off to die now. I'm going to go suffer and then get killed. You'd be like, no way, not my King Jesus, come on, that's not, not what I want from you. Look at what Peter says, that's exactly what he says. Verse 32, Jesus spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside, pulls Jesus aside and he began to rebuke him. Rebuking someone just means telling them that they're wrong. Peter pulls aside Jesus and he's like, Jesus, you've got it wrong, this can't be what you're on about. Peter's kind of having his own version of that feeling you might get when um, this guy up on the screen is your Prime Minister and you see something like this. That's Tony Abbott 
ex-prime minister eating a raw onion for some reason. I don't know why he's doing that. It's, it's kind of like he's like, oh man, that's my leader? Why is he eating a raw onion for? It seems weird and weak, right? Peter's going like, you're my king, you're my leader. What are you doing saying that you're going to die and suffer and be all weak and rubbish? Peter sees it all as weakness. He feels like he's playing for a losing team. And so he pulls Jesus aside and he's like, no, Jesus, that's not how it should be. Look at what Jesus says. Look at verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Whew, that's a pull up. He's called him Satan. If you guys are in G-teams at some point this term and um, you don't agree with what someone says, you could always bust out that one. Get behind me, Satan. Tell them that they're the devil, right? This is a serious pull-up. Jesus is saying, you're on the devil's team right now. You're acting like Satan. Why does he hit him up so harshly? Because Peter hasn't seen who Jesus really is. He doesn't get it. He doesn't get what kind of a king he is. Peter was expecting this king who would be almighty and awesome and conquer and win battles and make it awesome for his people. And Jesus turns up and he says, hey, I'm here to suffer and to die. Why? Why is he going to suffer and die? Because he wasn't strong enough to kind of escape the Romans when they came to arrest him? Because he wasn't smart enough to convince the courts that he was innocent when they tried him and, and put him on the cross? No, because Jesus' suffering and dying was God's plan to save us, to save us from the consequences of our sin. Sin in in terms of the way we mistreat other people around us and treat other people badly, and particularly sin in terms of not treating God right. Our sin means we've got a debt that needs to be paid to God. We owe God our lives. We deserve death for our sin. We deserve God's judgment. And so Jesus comes and he willingly and intentionally went to the cross for you, for me. He died to save us. That's how our king turns up. He comes and he dies to save us. Peter's mistake was that he didn't get who Jesus was yet. He just didn't get it. Here's a question for you tonight though. Here's a question for us. Are you following the real Jesus, this Jesus? Lots of people will tell you that if you follow Jesus, it's going to make your life awesome. You'll be heaps happier and healthy and you'll win at life, you'll be rich, it'll be popular, whatever. People will literally tell you that if you come and follow Jesus, Jesus is going to improve everything in your life and give you all this stuff and make it really, really good. If that's why you've come to Jesus, well, you're following the wrong Jesus. Or maybe you've kind of got this other view of Jesus. It's kind of like the Jesus is my BFF kind of view. You know, best friend forever, Jesus. He's, he's, he's non-judgmental. He doesn't care about your sin. He's only ever loving. He, you know, he doesn't want anything to do with telling you how you should run your life. He's just on about love and acceptance and being your friend. Problem is, what if that's not actually who Jesus is? What if Jesus didn't come just to make us happy? What if there's more to Jesus than just love and acceptance? Because he does love. But what if there's more to him than that? What if he actually wants us to follow him and to suffer with him? 
That was Peter's mistake. We need to follow the real Jesus, not just the one that we like in our own heads. And guys, here's the second huge thing to see tonight. Here's what it actually means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means giving up your life. Check it out, next section, verse 34. When, they called the, when he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, he said, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to follow me, must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. He says two things there. Step one, deny yourself. Actually say to yourself, I'm not the most important thing. I'm not at the center. I'm not most important. I'm not in charge. Deny yourself. And then secondly, take up your cross and follow me. What does that mean, to take up your cross? You've probably heard that if you've been around Christian stuff. People say, you know, you've got to take up your cross and follow Jesus. What does that mean? I reckon lots of us probably think it means something to do with sacrifice and doing hard stuff or something like that. And I reckon that's part of of it. I reckon that's true. But more fully, it actually means to die to yourself. In Jesus' time, if you saw a person walking down the road carrying along a cross, do you know what that meant? That was actually a person walking to their death. It's like the same thing as walking along with your noose up to the hangman's gallows where they're going to hang you. It's like walking to your electric chair. It's the walk to your death. That's what you're doing when you carry your cross in Jesus' time. Now, does that mean we literally need to get ourselves killed to, to follow Jesus? No, no. He's not saying that literally you need to be killed, but he is saying that being a Christian means dying to yourself, giving up your own life and entrusting it all to Jesus. It's like taking the keys to your life. You know, you you give someone the keys to the car, it's like, yeah, it's yours, here's the keys. It's like taking the keys to your life and handing them to Jesus and saying, it's yours now. Take it. Do it what you want. Take it where you want to go. This life is yours. Use it however you want. It's what it means to follow Jesus. And so actually in life, it now becomes not what I want in life, but what Jesus wants. Not my dreams and my goals, but Jesus. Not what makes me happy, but what will make Jesus happy. That's a huge shift. Everything comes under his control. It all gets laid at his feet and you say, it's all yours. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I hear that, that's a scary thought. To grab your whole life and lay it down in front of someone else and say, here, you take control of all of it. That's a scary thought. If you've caught how big this claim is on your life, you should be a little bit scared. It's a a freaky thought, I reckon, unless, unless it's the case that the person you're handing over your life to is better at running your life than you are. That's the only way it's not freaky. Let me, let me explain. Imagine for some... This is a weird scenario, right? But imagine for some reason gangsters kidnap you or whatever uh, and they threaten to kill you unless you can drive down this crazy road in 60 seconds, okay? Gangsters have caught you. You've got to drive down there in 60 seconds in your own car and pretend you're old enough to drive if you don't drive. Um, let's say your car is like a bomby old Hyundai Getz or something like that, okay? You got that bad boy, you got to drive down this road in 60 seconds, it's a piece of junk, that car, but it's your piece of junk, okay? It's a wonderful car. Um, and you know this car well, right? You know that the front left tyre is like pretty um, 
bald. You know that the steering's a bit off, so you've got to hold the wheel a little bit to stay straight on the road. You know that the back right shock doesn't work. You know this car inside out, right? Now, who would you rather drive you down this road in 60 seconds? And gangsters will kill you if you don't. Who would you rather, right? A, you do it in your car. Or B, you hand the keys to someone else and get them to do it. Now, I reckon most of us, if you have any level of competency at driving, would probably say you'd rather do it. It's your car, you know what you're doing. Surely you'd do the best job at it, right? I think we'd all agree with that. <laughs> um, but here's the thing. What if the person you want to drive... What if the other person who could drive you down... Now, I don't have a picture because I forgot to put it in there. Is this guy, Sebastian Ongier. He's the best rally driver in the world. Imagine the best rally driver in the world is actually the person who could drive you down instead of you. At that point, would you rather drive down in your Bombi Hyundai gets that you know pretty well or would you rather have the best rally driver in the world do it? I'm going for the rally driver guy, right? He's good at driving cars. I'm going to put him in control. I'm going to sit in the passenger seat and let him drive me down. Here's the point, guys. You may think that there's no one better, to qualif- there's no one better qualified to, ru- to run your life than you. You might think that. And the thought of Jesus coming along and having take con- complete control of your life is a scary thought. It's only scary until you realise just how qualified Jesus is to run your life. He's God. He's infinitely powerful. He has all the power. He knows everything. He rules history. He's actually in control of all of history. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows what's best for you. And more than that, he actually loves you. If you're ever tempted to doubt that Jesus loves you, remember this. He loves you so much that he died for you. He went to the cross and suffered for you so that you didn't have to, so that you were spared. He loves you. He's in control. He knows what's best. And so when Jesus comes along in this passage and says, hey, hand me the keys to your life, you know that you can trust him. You can trust him. He's not going to lead you anywhere that's not worth going. It might be hard. There'll be suffering. There'll be, there'll be sacrifice. There's going to be hard stuff, but it'll be worth it. Because there's no one better who could run your life. And so, guys, what might it mean if you were to take up your cross and follow Jesus? What's that going to mean for your life? Well, the place to start is actually how you think about your life. Taking up your cross starts with the way you think and starts with going, it starts with grabbing your dreams and your goals and your interests and everything that you want in life and grabbing all of that and actually putting it down and laying it at Jesus' feet and saying, I'm done, it's, it's yours, I'm done with it. You can have it all. And then once you've gotten to that point, and only then, you might say, hey Jesus, which parts of this would you have me pick back up again? If you think it belongs there, sure, I'll pick it up, but I'm going to lay every aspect of my life down at your feet, willing to give it all up to follow you. And so, for example, who are you going to date or who would you marry? Well, you won't date or marry someone who doesn't know Jesus. In fact, you won't date or marry someone who, who isn't going to actively encourage you to follow Jesus more. 
And that means that you may need to say no to someone who you actually really like. Someone you're in love with, maybe. There's going to be a cost there. But if they're going to drag you away from Jesus and not help you to follow Him, then you'll leave it at His feet. You'll put it down and you'll leave it there. What about sport? Now, you might decide that actually sport's a good thing you could pick up and use to glorify God in the way you play with honesty and integrity. You might use it to tell people about Jesus. There's lots of good things that you could do with sport. But what if sport started getting in the way of following Jesus? What if all the training and the commitment and all that kind of stuff meant that you had no time in your week to read your Bible, to tell other people about Jesus, to get along to youth or church? What might taking up your cross mean in that, in that context? I reckon you guys can figure it out. All right, what about jobs? What if your job was going to get in the way of following Jesus? If you had to choose between taking a shift at work on a Friday night or coming to youth, what might it mean to take up your cross then? What about where you'll live one day? At the moment, you live where your parents kind of put you. But what about if in the future, it becomes clear that there's a huge opportunity to serve Jesus somewhere else? But the only problem is that somewhere else is on the other side of the world or the other side of the country where you don't have many friends or family or all the comforts of home, would you go if you knew that that was where Jesus would have you go? Would you do it? Have you handed Jesus the keys to your life and said, it's yours. I'll go where you want. I'll live how you want. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Guys, have you done that? There's one last thing in this passage that's going to help us to do exactly that. Check it out. Verse 35, it's worth it. It's worth handing over the keys to your life. Look at verse 35. Jesus keeps talking. He says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. It's kind of like the opposite there. Jesus is saying that doing the very thing we're most scared to do, give over our life to Him, is actually the thing that means we're saved. In the long run, we'll be sweet. (laughs) We're afraid of giving over our lives to Jesus and coming to Him like that. But Jesus says if you do that, that's how your life is saved. And the opposite is true. If you hold on to your life, if you refuse to give your life over to Jesus, you'll lose your life. What's on view is actually our souls, our eternity, where we're going to spend eternity. Look at verse 36. He says, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, get everything you'd ever want in the world, and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? In the end, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man, Jesus, will be ashamed of them when he comes with his Father's glory and with the holy angels. It's talking about the end when Jesus comes in judgment. He's saying the stakes here are your soul, your eternal destiny. Seriously, what... Can you think of anything on the face of this whole planet 
that you would take in exchange for heaven? Can you think of anything on this world, all the things on this world, whatever, choose, take your pick, take anything, but it means you don't get to go to heaven at the end of this life. Would that be worth it? I can't think of a single thing that I'd love to grab hold of so that I lose heaven with God. It's just not worth it. What kind of job, what kind of girl or guy, what kind of sport, what kind of friends or acceptance, what kind of sin, no matter how tempting it is, would be worth missing out on heaven for? It isn't. And so Jesus says, lay it all down at my feet. Hand it over to me. Not what I want, but what you want, Jesus. I'll go where you'll have me go. I'll live where you, how you'll have me live. This life is yours. Use it. And guys, as you come to Jesus like that, remember that there's no one better to have run your life. He's better at this than you are. He knows how to live your life better than you do. Now, what does it mean if you're someone who's always called yourself a Christian? You would have thought you're a Christian. You trust in Jesus to save you. Um, but you've never come to this point before. You would have always thought you're a Christian, but you've never handed over control of your life to Jesus properly. What does that mean? I reckon it means probably one of two things. It's possible, actually, that you never truly understood what a Christian is. It might be that if you've never handed over control of your life to Jesus before, even though you've got some sort of relationship with him, it might actually mean you need to become a Christian tonight. Hand your life over to him. You've known Jesus is the one who died to save you, but actually you've never had him as your king, as the one ruling your life. It might mean you need to become a Christian. Secondly, though, it could be that perhaps you're a Christian, but you've been confused about a pretty key thing about what it means to be a Christian. And maybe tonight that's actually clicked for you for the first time. And so for you, I don't, I don't want to encourage you to become a Christian all over again. It, it might be that you're a Christian. But what I do want to encourage everyone here to do tonight is this. Kind of grab the symbolic keys to your life and hand them over to Jesus once and for all. And say to him, my life is yours, use it as you will. Make a commitment tonight to having him have control over everything from now on. A moment I'm going to lead us in a prayer. Sometimes when we do this at youth, when we pray together, um, we kind of say things like, this is an opportunity for you to become a Christian. Tonight's a little bit different to that. Now, you might become a Christian, I'm not sure, but what I want to do tonight is actually lead us in a prayer of handing our lives completely over to Jesus. Now, for some of you, if you do that for the first time, that might mean you've become a Christian because, you know, you weren't a Christian before. Um, but for many of us, we know Jesus, our trust is in Him to save us, He's our King, we recognise that He's our King, but we've still been holding things back from Him up until this point, keeping some things to ourselves. Maybe there's sin in your life you've kind of been stubbornly holding on to, not willing to let Jesus into that part of your life, or maybe you've just been tricking yourself into pretending there's no problem there at all, but actually there is and you know there is. Maybe there's stuff in your life that's not sin at all. It's not bad. 
but it's just something that you've let slip into the center of your life in the place that Jesus belongs. That might be going on for you tonight. Whether this is you becoming a Christian or simply handing complete control of your life over to Jesus for the first time, um, I want I want you to pray with me tonight if you want to do that. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. I want to do it a bit differently though. I, I want to, um, I guess just as a a symbol of the commitment you might be making together. I want to ask all of us whether you want to pray with me or not to actually stand up. We're going to sing in a moment anyway. So everyone stand up where you are. We'll sing in a moment anyway. And tonight we're going to pray standing up as we make this commitment together. So guys, if you want to make this prayer your prayer tonight, then pray along in your head and we're going to sing together after that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for suffering and dying for me. Jesus, you've already bought my life with your blood. You already own it. And so, Jesus, we pray, please take the keys to my life and and use it as you would will. Take the sin that we've been holding on to, help us to kill it, to let it go. Take my desires, my priorities, my plans, my dreams. Help me to lay it all down at your feet. And instead, ask you, how do you want me to live? Help us to obey you. We pray that all of that would be to your glory. Amen.